I'm joined now by Miles Leslie. He's Associate Professor of School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary, and he's behind this report. Hello, Dr. Leslie. Morning, George. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for joining me. Um, so, tell me about this this report. What what's what's what have you what what is this study this this report that's been done in Alberta? So, uh, first thing, it's not an Alberta thing. Anybody ah. can come to it. It's vhguide.ca. Okay. Uh, open to absolutely anybody. So, if a BC family physician wanted to come to it, or just somebody from BC wanted to come to it, not a problem. Okay. Cool. Where did we start? Well, the idea was, you know, but back in January, if you can cast your mind back to when there just wasn't any vaccine and uh, people were wanting, those who wanted it were already calling their family physicians. They were saying, hey, I want Mm -hmm. it now. And the Mm -hmm. family doctors were saying, nope, can't do it because it doesn't exist at all. And by the way, as you just mentioned, in BC, it sort of happened. In Alberta, it took a while, and it sort of kind of more a little bit happened. In Ontario, the family doctors are definitely delivering the jabs. Depends on the province you're mm-hmm. in. But ultimately, you've got all of this sort of initial demand. There's lots of people out there that are totally gung-ho about this and want to get jabbed and want to get back to normal life and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, they were calling the doctor's offices already, and I think we could put them under the category of, you had me at hello. (laughs) Then there's some other folks um, who, if you're going to look at a sort of curve of people, I don't know if anybody can sort of imagine that in their head, but that sort of standard bell curve of how populations Mm -hmm. spread out. Well, the people on the left were the had you at hellos. Mm -hmm. They were already calling their doctor's offices, and they wanted it. And the people on the far right, well, they they were saying, you're never going to do this. This is never going to happen for me. So the people on the left had a, had a very, very small, almost zero hesitancy. Mm-hmm. And the people on the right had an almost infinite amount of hesitancy. <laughs> and then the people in the middle, which is most of us in that mm-hmm. big bell portion, well, there's some people that are sort of sitting on the fence thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Our team started in January thinking, well, obviously we've got all the had you at hellos right now. Yeah. But come, what do you know, July, August. That's right. We're going to probably be looking at that center section of the bell and how we can get people to go across and say, yeah, I I was worried about this. I've still got some concerns about it, but maybe I could talk to somebody that I trust about this kind of thing and they can help me think it through in a different way. So we started putting, uh, I guess, one more stop along the way to why we did this and how we got where we are. We thought, well, who's best positioned to have that conversation? I don't know if you saw, but yesterday... Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford, got up behind a lectern and he said, hey, I'm going to urge anybody who isn't vaccinated to start talking to somebody you trust about this. Mm-hmm. And, and our team sat and watched that. We thought, I mean, well, we know. <laughs> you get the answer yeah. to that. Uh, who, who, do you, who do you want to go to? Are you going to yeah. go to your neighbor? Probably not. Are you going to go to your family member? No, family members, you know, we agree about some stuff. We fight about some other stuff. But, like, do you trust them with medical stuff? Eh, maybe sometimes. Mm-hmm. You probably go to your family doc, right? Because right. that's a source of trusted medical advice and they're on your side and that kind of stuff. So we thought, let's, let's go to people who have ongoing conversations rather than one-shot conversations. Like mm-hmm. you should go to the hospital, the ED, and you got one shot at the person. This is somebody who you see now and again, sometimes. I guess if you're younger, very fairly infrequently, but if you're older, probably quite a bit. Go check, have your meds balanced mm-hmm. and get some tests done, that kind of stuff. So we thought this was a great place to try to produce a guide to having better conversations. Okay. And I think that's, that's a really important point to take, that it's a guide to better conversations. It's not a playbook to stick handle people. <laughs> right. It's not, a, it's not a, a sales manual to get people to do this. Um, because 
is there any of us, any of us who actually want to be sold on this kind of thing? Both the people that were, you know, you had me at hello, they were already sold. And the people that are worried about it, no, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to buy a used car. I want to maybe get my life back, but I'm worried about this stuff. But so they, I don't need the used car pitch. Sure. So early on, this would not have been possible. In the early stages of the vaccinations, doctors couldn't have handled the volume that, that, that was required, right? So this is more of a second phase or third phase of the process. That's right. That's right. They, so, yeah, it, I think if, we, if the various provinces had all set their family docs up with the capacity to deliver the vaccine, um, maybe, maybe we've been a little, bit of a little bit further ahead than we are now. But that's, uh, that's hindsight. Let's, let's just go with what we got for now. Mm-hmm. Now we're moving into that center chunk of people who are hesitant about this. And the family doctor's office, whether that doctor can deliver the shot or not, is a great place to have the conversation. And I got to tell you, like, there's stuff out there that they say on the one side, yeah, you should be able mm-hmm. to have the conversation and immediately close the deal, right? Yeah. You come in, George comes in and says to Miles, the doctor, hey, you know, I'm worried about this kind of thing. Miles does some great talking, and George is like, yeah, you know what, set me up. And I go, right here, right now. I originally thought, our team originally thought when we went off into the field, that's what you got to do, right? Mm-hmm. You got to get these family doctors that got it right there in a fridge by the desk, and we can just do this right now. Close mm-hmm. the deal. Mm-hmm. There's a world-leading expert in Canada on a thing called motivational interviewing, and it's all about how you do uh, vaccine hesitancy conversations. Right. And I talked to this man, and he said, well, that's, that's an interesting perspective you have there, and it might work some of the time. But for the people that are even a little bit further to the right of that big bell who are really, really mm-hmm. worried about stuff, you don't want to go there. I'm like, what do you mean? you got to do this right away. No, no, you don't want to go there. You want to be able to have a conversation where the goal of the conversation is not yes. The goal of the conversation is, okay, so you're on my side. You heard me. You heard that I have real concerns about this. Whether you agree with them or not is immaterial. You heard me. You're my ally, and maybe I can now take some information from you about how um, it doesn't actually mess with your DNA. It it wasn't (laughs) actually rushed. That's the thing. I mean, Simi Sarah, our morning show host, was talking to Dr. Anna Wallach, a Vancouver family doctor, uh, about concerns about patients. Here's a clip, a little short clip of her. I dread the time if I talk to a patient and then I worry about Will they go away and read something else and then change their minds? See, that's the challenge. I mean, you've got that was Dr. Anna Wallach. You know that they, you know, Dr. Google and Dr. Facebook are also helping these people uh, make their decisions. And you're up. That's an uphill battle for a doctor. Yeah, yeah. And as I said, I went into the when we started our research. I was I was firmly on the side of wow, we've got to give Dr. Wallach and all of the other family Mm -hmm. docs a supply right there in the room so that they can immediately go, yeah, you like this idea? Let's do this. And I'm talking to this, uh, so I, I should give the man's name, poor man. His, his name is Arnaud Gagnier. <laughs> he's at the University of Sherbrooke. Okay, And well he, he describes, um, he's actually got a video of working with some parents who've mm-hmm. just had a baby, and they're not going to have the baby inoculated against anything. And he comes in, and he does his spiel, um, and he walks away. And I'm, and I'm sitting there, right? Like, I've got this heavy, heavy used car salesman deep inside me where I'm like, mm-hmm. no, 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 come on, man, you've got to close the deal. He walks away, and the last thing he says to them is, you will be good parents regardless of the decision you make. I'm on your side, whatever you do here. The next day, his colleagues, he goes off service, 
And the next day, his colleagues call him and say, you know what? The patients just said that they want to put the full panel into their kid. Wow. So, so get, you, you empower them, give them some knowledge, and then let them ruminate on it, I suppose, without putting the hardcore pressure, the hard sale, as you say. And, and I'm with Dr. Wallach on the, I'm worried that they're going to go off and have a chat with Dr. Google and Dr. Facebook and mm-hmm. a bunch of other stuff. But at the same time, if we accept the sort of basic conditions of our society, which are everybody's a free individual, mm-hmm then we got to respect that. And we got to respect that in a real way, not a, I'm going to stick handle you and I'm going to find out what, what I, how I think I can nudge you and make stuff happen inside your head that you don't want to have happen. Because yeah, I don't know if anybody ever went to those old shows where the hypnotist showed up, right? And the hypnotist is at the front of the stage and they call 20 people up and they get rid of like 15 people, mm-hmm. mostly because the 15 people, at least one of them went up like, hey, he's never going to hypnotize me. Mm-hmm. Of course he's not going to hypnotize you. you. If wrong, you're not into it, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I've been there. I did, I did that hypnosis in Vegas and I could, it couldn't get me under. I was too skeptical. <laughs> so I totally get that attitude. Although, you know, vaccination is another game. You know, and the thing is that GPs, you know, generally, general practitioners, our doctors, you go to them, uh, if you're going to go on a trip and you get yourself vaccinated for those trips because you're required and you go to your doctor and say, I need these vaccinations. Okay, no problem. You know, you know, pull your pants down. Let's put this giant needle to for whatever this horrible disease is. This one's an easy shot. Um, so it's, you know, we have a process in place that doctors, you know, have the ability to do this. Uh, and, and doctors are, are they not, they're sort of bedside manners, a big part of training. And it's, it's not like uh, they're meant to kind of churn out, uh, you know, patient after patient. They're meant to have good bedside manner. That's part of their training. So this makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. We're just like, there's, <laughs> we didn't do it. It's lovely that I'm talking to you. I'm really, really pleased to be on the radio. Who wouldn't be? But in the end, all our research team did was go off and talk to family doctors. Mm-hmm. We talked to them in BC and Alberta and Ontario and the Yukon. And we said, okay, first phase of our research is what are you seeing? And they're like, okay. And they gave us a list of the kinds of hesitancy they were seeing. So it wasn't just about the amount that somebody had. When I started, I was like, the person on the left has almost none. And the person on the right has so much that they're never going to get it done. Yep. It's not about the amount that you have. It's where it's coming from, right? So maybe, you, as you just said, maybe you're afraid of needles, big, big, bad, nasty mm-hmm, ones, mm-hmm. or little tiny ones. The anxiety That's there. One yeah. kind of objection. Then there's another kind of objection about, oh, you know, my religious principles are against this. Or right. another one is people like me have been treated by, uh, poorly by the health system in the past. Or, like, there's, there's a lot of different ways that you can slice up the hesitancy pie. Mm-hmm. So we asked the doctors, so what do you see? What do you see while you're, while you're doing your job every day? Then we went back to them after we'd created this tree of stuff. Again, go to www.vhguide.ca, and you can just see it. Mm-hmm. That's, it's built around the tree that they gave us. What are you saying to people? Mm-hmm. When you have this particular kind of hesitancy, what do you say next? And there were people that were you know, less successful, and they were the ones who tended towards trying to just pile facts on top of folks, right? Okay. Here's a pamphlet. And by the way, don't worry right. because the science is fine. Yeah. A recent op-ed in the Global Mail has people all riled up. Titled, Pickup Trucks Are a Plague on Canadian Streets. It outlines pickups' popularity in Canada that almost no one uses them for hauling more than, you know, once a year. And it talks about their impact on the environment and even has issues related to safety. So, are, you know, are pickups dan- pickup trucks dangerous? Our next guest investigated exactly that for Consumer Reports. Keith Barry is a writer and editor for the magazine. Hey, Keith. 
Hey, George, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So that op-ed, it really got people worked up, including the Premier of Alberta, who is really strongly like, this is, you know, very he was very supportive of trucks. Why, why do you think the, this got people so riled up? Well, people love their trucks, and people don't like being told what to do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, it, as much as as I entirely uh, agree with some of the points that were made in in, in the op-ed, uh, especially surrounding safety, and there's mm -hmm. and there's evidence behind that, um, it can be a, a little tough to get people to change behavior, especially because these pickup trucks, especially today, are are almost a victim of their own success. They're 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 comfortable. They fit as many people as a car. They get decent gas mileage. Um, mm. And being told, hey, this this great vehicle that's really versatile, maybe it has some externalities that can be, then you know not be that great for the rest of the world. Well, people don't like to don't like to hear that. So I so I understand why there's a lot of controversy around this. And and they don't really they, they mm. points out the use of these trucks is minimal. Um, you know, and I think that if you you know, in the city of Vancouver, you don't see a ton of huge trucks, but they are, they're still existing. And usually I, the ones I see seem to be used uh, for work. But when you go outside of the city, you definitely see bigger trucks being used. I mean, the popularity of these things. I mean, what is the sales numbers of trucks in Canada to cars? Yeah, so I mean, it, it's really regional. It's interesting yeah. you talk about cities versus, you know, where I am in, in the States, there's, yeah. there, there, people drive trucks in cities and try and parallel park them in Manhattan. And that, that's <laughs> a little crazy. But I think even though truck sales themselves are, are pretty, pretty stable, what we're seeing is that trucks are getting smaller trucks are, are just going away. Those old, uh -huh. you know, uh, is, is yeah, old Mighty Maxes and right. you know, the, the kind of the, the things that landscapers would drive, the real small trucks, yeah. they're gone. And now the, the, the compact trucks are now midsize trucks and the big trucks are by and large getting bigger. And we found, uh, you know, we looked at vehicle registration data and we looked mm -hmm. at, at uh, and, and found that, that, that on average, trucks have gotten 11% taller and 24% heavier over the past 20 years. Wow. And that means they're, that means they're, they're more dangerous. How dangerous are they? I mean, and are they dangerous for the driver? Because I would say if you're in one of these things, you feel pretty safe. But if you're a person on the street, that's where the danger comes Or is it both? It's it's a little bit of both. So hmm. it, so the trucks, yes, themselves, uh, a heavier vehicle is is always, generally speaking, is a good place to be if mm -hmm. if you're in a crash. But uh, trucks, even more so than similarly sized SUVs, just because of their design, a lot of them are, the, are this body on frame design, which which changes where the center of gravity is. Okay. When you're in a crash with a smaller vehicle, it's more deadly for the occupant of the smaller vehicle. And because largely because of blind spots, we find that that the trucks uh, trucks tend to have more angular hoods that are longer than mm -hmm. SUVs. They they have that big sort of aggressive look, yep. and and that gives them a blind spot, a frontal blind spot that's sometimes more than three meters longer than uh, than a car. And and that's that's a big difference if there's someone crossing the road in front of you. And we often hear you know after a crash with the trucks, the driver saying, "I didn't even see them," and they might have been an attentive driver, but the design of this vehicle. Um, it, it, the designs of trucks can can make them more deadly to other people in a crash. Is that entire front space being used for it with the engine, or is it just a bunch of wasted space in there? So, uh, <laughs> you know, depending upon who you talk to, uh, <laughs> waste is sort of a relative term here. Sometimes, <laughs> okay. uh, sometimes they, you know, automakers tell us that there's 
that you know there's there's more engine cooling there's more space for engine cooling for towing so you can put a bigger radiator fan in there and that's why it has that big front end but we've okay. also seen that a lot of this is just style that a lot of drivers uh, and pickup buyers specifically gravitate towards these larger more aggressive designs and you know they i i, I agree they look kind of cool sometimes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but the trade-off of that is that you lose situational awareness when you're behind the wheel. The the design is one thing, but uh, and you talked about efficiency. Uh, you know, from your point of view and consumer reports, when you talk about efficiency of vehicles, these trucks are not only bigger, but they're becoming more efficient. So it's not even like you're wasting fuel necessarily. Yeah, well, it depends upon what you're what you're going from. If mm-hmm. you're going from a an inefficient truck to a more efficient truck, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're going from an efficient car to an uh, to a truck that gets decent fuel economy but not as good as a smaller vehicle, that's where you find uh, that's where you find that trade off doesn't necessarily have the best environmental income uh, impact uh, uh, overall. So it really depends upon what you're going from. But then again, trucks can do things that these other vehicles can't. So, you know, I think electrification, we're seeing more hybrid right. trucks. Uh, Ford's coming out with a compact hybrid truck that gets appears to get really good fuel economy. Can't wait to test it and see. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, that can be mitigated more so than the size issue. Okay, so I was going to ask about mitigation. on the, In the current, before we yeah. get to the EV question, the current, the, you know, fuel engine, what things can be mitigated? Can we have cameras? I mean, the technology is amazing that cars have now. Is there not ways to mitigate uh, the the dangers of the pedestrian and the driver through some technology advances? Oh, totally, totally. So um, the good news is that, you know, I I don't think anyone's going to come for your trucks, but I do (laughs) think that there's uh, going to be more focus on, on this technology that is already standard equipment on a lot of cars and minivans and SUVs. Things like automatic emergency braking with pedestrian detection that can can stop the vehicle uh, automatically or mitigate the impact of a crash at, at higher speeds or blind spot warning that, you know, it can see mm-hmm. in your blind spot and tell you if there's a vehicle there. Those are really helpful in, in, in vehicles. You know, when I drive a vehicle that doesn't have great sight lines, that has big blind spots, I'm very grateful to have those, but they're not standard on a lot of trucks, even though they're standard on a lot right. smaller vehicles. So it, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So that's where the government could come in and say, you know, we should mandate that. You look at a Tesla, for example, the, you know, the, the dashboard, which doesn't, you know, all it is is a TV in there. Um, and it's amazing. I've been in a Tesla and, you, you know, it tells you when you're too close to a car. It shows the actual pedestrians walking across the street and beside you and shows you the cones. It's pretty amazing what you can get, uh, the information that you can be pulled from all the cameras that are on, on the Tesla. Oh, totally. And and even going down to really, really affordable vehicles, we're finding cars that cost well under $20,000 have this technology standard. I mean, it might not have that cool display, mm-hmm. but it's doing all the work behind the scenes. And that's what, you know, if you're buying a $40,000 pickup truck, we also think that that technology should come standard. Absolutely. EV trucks, one thing that was surprising, I saw a recent launch of one of the EV trucks in it, and, and it, had, it still had that giant front end, but inside of it, they just turned it into a, a storage space, and they kept a big look to it. So they're not taking advantage of the electrical ability, the ability of the EV uh, uh, to get rid of the engine. They still use that space, which I guess is kind of good because it has a trunk on it, but you know they could have looked at the safety. Why are they not looking at that? Just because of the design, and that's a big part of why you buy it truck yeah i i mean they i think 
with an EV, uh, you know, there's there's sort of that perception that it that it might be not as powerful right. as a, as a gas or diesel powered vehicle, and and I think the designers are very conscious that hmm. they wanted to appeal to uh, to people who wanted to buy a truck, so they put that front trunk, which colloquially they call it a frunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's your word of the day. Yep. Uh, <laughs> you open it up, and there's storage in there, and it is useful with a truck because. You know, you have that open bed if you want to keep stuff in there, if you want to put your groceries so they don't get rained on, you yeah. can put them in the trunk. But, I, I, you know, I would like to see, and I think we're going to see, as people start to see what these electric pickups are capable of, you know, powering your power tools wise. at a work yeah. site and, yeah. you know, and towing, that we're going to start to see people realize, oh, these are tough. They don't need to look tough like a truck from the uh-huh. 20th century. They can look tr- tough like a truck from the 21st. Do you see government intervening at all in, in any respect here? Obviously, with Consumer Reports, when you, you know, you're doing stuff, you guys talk a lot about you know, policies and how things – and I think government looks at, to you guys for guidance on a lot of stuff. Uh, do you see government intervening on this side, on the truck, on the truck issue? Well, I, I think we've already seen some movement, uh, you know, voluntary agreement with, with automakers to have uh, auto, automatic emergency braking standard. Mm-hmm. And, and automakers seem to be moving towards that. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be some movement towards that um, and, and a pedestrian safety testing. I'm hoping that that will happen at least in the states because that, you know, un, un, unfortunately, that sort of drives policy for, for the U.S. and Canada. Um, but I, but I would, I would like to see there to be more of a focus on the people outside of the vehicle, not just the drivers inside, because we're doing a pretty good job protecting yeah. them. Now we have to look at everyone else on the road. Okay, back to it. The Britney movement, free, you know, free Britney. Britney Spears, as you know, has gained a lot of momentum. Uh, there was a movie that came out called Framing Britney Spears. The conservatorship laws that have seemingly left Britney with little control, uh, little control over her own life, um, you know, makes you wonder: Does Canada have protections like this that? Because to stop this from happening, could the same thing happen to somebody here? Obviously, she's a celebrity, but it might be a little different there. But, you know, I want to find out if if the same things could happen in Canada. I'm joined by Laura Johnson. She's a legal director of health justice, an adjunct professor and lawyer who's worked with many adults impacted by BC's mental health and guardianship. Hi, Hi, Laura. Good morning. So it's easy to kind of make light of the, the Britney Spears situation, but... You know, it does. It is creating a larger debate that you've sort of wrote about in your op-ed for the Vancouver Sun. You know, that's related to mental health and guardianship. What what is that debate? I think what's happening to Miss Spears is an opportunity for us to sort of shine a light on an area of law that has been in the dark for a really long time. As you say, it's you know fairly easy to see this as a celebrity mm-hmm. issue, um, but it's not. So something that I thought was interesting to draw attention to is that, you know, we have really similar laws here in Canada um, that they have in the States. And I think what, you know, Ms. Spears' candid testimony is really showing is just how invasive these adult guardianship or mental health laws can be. And, and I'm surprised by that because I think, oh, Canada, U.S., we're different, um, that, that we have similar laws here. Are they just outdated or what is going on? Why are we? Why are, and why is she having such a challenge? Because if she's having that challenge there, would somebody have the same challenges here? Then, absolutely. And you're not alone in that reaction. I think we often here in Canada think, "Oh, well, that's a problem that Americans have in the mm. United States, and that couldn't happen up here." 
But the reality is that we are um, both uh, countries and provinces and states and territories that uh, have colonial influences on our law. A lot of um, British colonial law was imported into territories we now call Canada and America um, through a process that sort of displaced uh, Indigenous peoples' laws that existed uh, before um, settler contact. And so as a result of that similar colonial history, uh, there's actually remarkable similarities between Canadian provinces and territories in American states when it comes to issues like adult guardianship. We may call it different words. Mm-hmm. Um, in BC, for example, the closest corollary to what Ms. Spears is under is called a comitatship as opposed to a conservatorship. But in essence, it's the same thing. It's a court declaring that you as an adult don't have the right to make your own decisions anymore and that somebody else is going to be making decisions for you. Mm-hmm. So the you talk about these laws that were brought over. I mean, they were based on some Christian principles, I suppose. A lot of the regu- laws that we have created in our, in our, in, you know, and and is that has that got something to do with it about how you relate and 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 and, and the mental health issues and how that's evolved. I mean, our our understanding of mental health are we just not there yet? The, you know, we, laws are not always black and white, but they sure try to be. Uh, where you can create, okay, this is this happens, this happens, this happens, and you do this. Whereas with mental health issues, it's, you know, you can't, it's not black and white, it's complicated. And to put those two together is almost impossible. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's exactly as you say, these laws are sort of um, based on this outdated idea of paternalism Mm -hmm. or what we call the parent patriarch jurisdiction, this idea that the state sort of has to take care of people who they see as vulnerable. And the problem, of course, with that is that we now have a much different understanding of mental health Mm -hmm. and mental disability. Historically, uh, we treated people with mental disabilities as if they were non-persons, essentially. Um, We saw them as completely incompetent or completely incapable and had these sort of sledgehammer responses of, Mm -hmm. well, if you have a brain injury, um, then you don't get to have any say in your life. Someone else is controlling your life entirely. And of course, that's just not true. In reality, we know that the people that we live with and love and um, the experiences we have in our own life show us that, of course, you can have a mental health challenge and you could have a brain injury or dementia. Um, You could have any number of mental disabilities and you might need help. You might need support. You might need services. But that doesn't mean you're an incompetent person. And so the problem with our law is not catching up with our current understanding is that the law still treats it as an all or nothing concept. Oh, you need help with your decisions? We're going to declare you a non-person at law and take away all your decision-making rights. And you can see that has a really vivid impact um, as Ms. Spears' testimony showed. You know, she wasn't able to make basic decisions about her bodily autonomy, what health care she had, what reproductive choices she made, um, even just controlling your own money uh, are basic sort of things that you and I might take for granted, but might be displaced by these outdated laws. So those laws need to be updated and, and you're pushing for that and we'll see those changes. Are, there, are, are, are governments being heard? And just, I got to go to a break, but real quickly, can we see changes here in Canada? Well, every province and territory has their own laws on this and um, certainly I would hope that BC would take a look at their laws and review them and update them. 
um, different provinces have. Certainly, sort of Nova Scotia has, mm-hmm. and different jurisdictions okay. have taken a look at that. So we certainly hope that the BC government will take a look at these laws too. Thank, thanks, Laura. I appreciate you being here. It's very interesting. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. We want to talk about, we've heard many different voices in the restaurant industry talking about how they've struggled uh, and they're struggling with staffing shortages these days. A lot of people have left the industry altogether, but as our contributor, John Jang, points out, that's not the only industry that's dealing with such problems. Hey, John. Hey, good morning, George. We know that restaurants have been struggling to fill out their rosters for the past several months, with so many former employees having left during the pandemic due to a variety of different reasons. But another industry is dealing with a staff shortage that could directly impact your upcoming travel plans. Katie Redwood is a former Air Canada flight attendant, and like many of her former colleagues, she was out of work last year when non-essential flights were grounded. But as those restrictions are now easing up, flight attendants are in high demand. Yeah, so um, I think my last flight that I operated was um, at the beginning of March. So it was right kind of in like the beginning of the height of the pandemic when we were all kind of still very much so afraid of everything that was going on and there was a lot of unknowns. So I was on a special assignment with Air Canada. So I was a little bit different than my coworkers who were working regular um, flights. And so they kind of put in a complete pause on what we were doing a little bit earlier than everybody else. And we were luckily enough on Sue's for a little while. So that was keeping us going for a little bit. Although some people's Sue's payments um, were quite small. Um, And so, yeah, we got officially laid off um, in June. And then I think that I want to say 7,000 of us were laid off, but I know that it was a huge amount of people, not just as flight attendants, but also the baggage handlers, um, management was like downsized, everybody who worked at the airport and like in conjunction with the airport, I think we lost at least half of all of our workers. When your layoff notice arrived, did you make any plans at that time to find another job or did you just wait and see because maybe you thought this would be over pretty quickly? Absolutely. I was actually just having this conversation with my roommate last night where she was saying, yeah, remember when we had that conversation when we first got laid off? And I was like, hey, it's going to be like a month or two. Maybe we'll get back to flying in the winter time. Like we're going to have the summer off and then we'll get back and everything will be back to normal. And I was like, um, I think it's going to be years until we get back. And I can remember at the time she was like, absolutely not. Like we'll be back in a couple months. Um, but yeah, there's. I think there's still confusion as to when people are going to be back fully flying. I think there is a lot of optimism, which is great, especially among a lot of the flight attendants who have been very um, vocal about their wish to open up the borders and increase um, flying and tourism. And I think there's also an equally strong voice, especially among flight attendants who are, although we've lost our job and for a lot of people, it was their main source of income, their like dream job Although we've lost that, we do recognize how important it is to be able to keep numbers low, keep the spread of the virus low. And so I think everybody has just kind of like stopped making bets on when we're all going to get back because at this point, we have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. And I think that all you can really do is embrace that at this point. What do you think makes people want to stay in this particular industry? What about it is so appealing? Yeah. Well, I think there's definitely two kinds of flight attendants. I think there are the people who, like me, 
Um, this wasn't a job that I dreamed of. It just kind of worked out perfectly um, to my strengths and the things that I enjoy. So like I love talking to people and I love having basically a captive audience to like tell me all about their their trips and their travels and their lives and um, the aspect of like keeping everybody safe and like the very like regimented work schedule. It's really great for parents because you are able to get sometimes you only work, I think the minimum work that I saw some flight attendants was they only work like eight days a month. That being said, it's very rough on the body, especially if you have a very like tight ended schedule. It's very rough, especially with the time zones and the lack of sleep. But I think there's those people who love the travel benefits. And then this is just a job that they're very good at. And then there are the people who have dreamed about being a flight attendant their entire lives. Those people, I think, are going to be what keeps the airline industry going. But yeah, I think there's, if we found something else that we're also very good at and that we also enjoy, it's going to be hard to drop whatever we have going on now in order to go back to, as you said, a very difficult job. If there aren't enough flight attendants available to work a flight, does that impact people waiting at the gate? Like, for example, does it delay the flight or maybe cancel it altogether? Yes, that does happen. And that is kind of one of the beauties of having so many of us um, was that if there is a shortage of staff, especially if somebody calls in sick or if for whatever reason somebody misses their connection, a lot of delays, I think, are due to crew, not necessarily just flight attendants, but also pilots. Um, but yeah, it'll be, they can only, I think Air Canada, especially, and then probably all the other airlines, they do have like a very specific number of people that they need in order to operate the amount of flights. How does being a flight attendant provide you with the skills to jump into another field of work? Like how transferable are the things that you pick up in training? There are a lot of different things out there that we can do. And I know that a lot of different people have found passions that they kind of didn't have the opportunity to pursue before. Like I have a lot of friends who are flight attendants who are now like going to nursing school, who are going back to university, going back to college and are taking passions that they had before the pandemic and they've had the time and the space and the energy to be able to pursue it because nothing is worse than cracking open a textbook when you've only had four or five hours of sleep after doing a Vancouver Calgary turn. And so personally for me, I'm transitioning probably into hopefully the tech industry. Um, I'm starting in, in a new position that I'm hoping will kind of bring my life into a little bit different of a space and hopefully still have a lot of the same things that I liked about working as a flight attendant, like the flexibility, the ability to learn and experience new things every day. And unfortunately, I feel like I'm going to be one of those flight attendants who gives up on the dream of like continuing to fly for the rest of their life. But um, I think that that's one of the great things that came out of the pandemic was that people like me discovered things that we never thought we would be interested in or things that we never thought we would be good at. And we're able to kind of take that and run with it. And so I think that that's going to be one of the most interesting and most beneficial things that came out of the pandemic is just people being able to try new things and experience new things and hopefully bring some positivity back into this new changed world. She is Katie Redwood, former Air Canada flight attendant who has handed in her wings, as they say, like many of her former colleagues across the entire industry over the past 16 months. Katie, thank you so much for giving us some time here. Best of luck with everything moving forward. Thank you. 
So Numinous is a Vancouver-based company that advances treatments for mental health care based on psychedelic-assisted therapies. And they've just been granted approval from Health Canada to study MDMA-assisted therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. What does that mean? Is there a potential for party drugs to work as mental health therapies? Joining me now is Medical Director at Numinous Wellness, Inc., um, Dr. Devin Christie, and they're the ones who got this right. Hey, De- hey, Dr. Christie. Hi there. Thanks for joining me today. This is a big deal. I mean, there's lots of companies, I think, that are trying to get into this space, but uh, you've got this approval. How big of a deal is this? Well, it's a, it's a big deal, not only for us, uh, because of how it's really helping Numinous to tool up to deliver these evidence-based therapies, but also a really big deal for Canadians because PTSD is affecting uh, 1 in 11 Canadians in their lifetime, and this is absolutely a breakthrough treatment that um, companies like ours are really um, digging in to help advance and bring to the people as soon as possible. PTSD is, is very specific. Is, uh, can you tell me how this treatment works and how it could actually go beyond um, uh, PTSD and other mental or other uh, challenges that people have, drug addiction or whatever? Certainly, yeah. So PTSD is the primary indication. MAPS is the company that sponsors this this study that Numinous is funding. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been working for the last 30 years really to bring MDMA-assisted psychotherapy to the current stage of where it's about to uh, be poised to get FDA and Health Canada and other international regulated drug approval. Uh, What makes this therapy uh, very unique and different uh, from current uh, standard treatments is it's a new approach where the action of a drug is combined with psychotherapy to maximize the benefits of psychotherapy and also to create some very state-specific changes temporarily that allow that psychotherapeutic uh, container and environment, which is very safe, very structured, and medically supervised, to benefit uh, the person seeking treatment in ways that uh, have been previously inaccessible. Um, so it is uh, it's this very new paradigm to combine uh, dosing with a medication only on a, uh, less than a handful of uh, occasions with a truly curative intent. Uh, previous therapies, uh, whether those are pharmacological mm-hmm. or whether those are uh, through psychotherapy, uh, tend to take a long time and re- require ongoing treatment. They're really just doing the best at kind of keeping symptoms at bay. PTSD hasn't really been considered a, a condition, especially severe PTSD, that's uh, even uh, curable. It's considered by many to be a long-term chronic uh, issue. So this is very, very exciting um, that, that, that this treatment is actually coming forward. And I think we'll see that a lot of the um, underlying factors that contribute to the development of PTSD actually contribute to many other mel- mental mm-hmm. health conditions, mm-hmm. conditions as well. And there's work actually happening right now to look into MDMA-assisted psychotherapy as a treatment for eating disorders, for example, and other, um, other notoriously very challenging to treat mental health conditions that contribute to a lot of suffering. Right, to sometimes drug addiction. And so let me get this clear, the MD, this process, you you basically go in with this drug, pull somebody out and put them into a different clarity of, of, so that they can be psychoanalyzed? Is that, how how does that, so you you use this drug to provide clarity and then, and it's only for short term, that's that's the way I understand it. 
Yeah, yeah. So people are screened medically, then they meet their therapist team uh, to develop trust and rapport and to understand a bit of the history. And then they have these uh, sessions, which last about six to eight hours long, where the participant is under the effect of the drug. Mm -hmm. The elements of the set and setting are very important. So it's a very calming, relaxed environment. It's not sterile or clinical in any way, more like a living room than a clinic. And um, music is a key component as well. And the participant is encouraged and supported to go into their experience and to really trust what is emerging mm. in the process. And uh, memories can surface. Um, and what the drug enables is, um, uh, and, and there's actually been some neuroscientific research here, um, where the fear centers in the brain are actually quieted and dampened down. And other aspects that are very beneficial to therapy, like enhancing of trust, mm-hmm. um, reduction in shame, really reducing, like turning the volume knob down hmm. on um, emotional experiences that are otherwise too overwhelming for a person to actually even approach in therapy, all of a sudden becomes manageable. And um, that person is then able to reprocess the way those traumatic events and memories have been living in their body and their nervous system for so many years, causing all of the difficulty and dysfunction that they're facing in their day-to-day, reprocess and actually release and no longer be burdened. It becomes like a story in the history of their lives, a page in the book, as opposed to something that's living in their system um, uh, day-to-day, impacting them in ways that they're unable to function in their families and in their work. So those things with psychotherapy, quite often what they might describe as epiphanies happen, and that's when things really start to change, is that it provides the ability for them to have these kind of epiphanies and go, oh, I, I think I know now logically, potentially, how to fix that problem because I've had a chance to you know, get get at it, and I f- now I understand it better? Absolutely. I mean, that is certainly one way. We, we are learning through very advanced neuroimaging research the impact of psychedelics in the brain. And uh, MDMA, one of uh, a type of psychedelic used in this research, um, it, it, what we're learning is that psychological flexibility is enhanced. So many more uh, connections in your brain, if you think of it like um, highways in your brain uh, that are connecting, there's more possibilities that a bigger repertoire of connections that can happen and the usual ruts that we get into, mm-hmm. which are our very habituated ways that we think about ourselves, our lives, our relationships, get temporarily suspended while we have access to these new ways. So yes, that kind of insight or aha is very much enhanced by the presence of the drug and um, also the presence of the therapist and the relational aspect of feeling seen mm-hmm. and supported in ways that people maybe never have been able to experience and to really let it in, in a way where without the drug, they may have uh, defenses yeah, up in that regard. Or whatever. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So, so, so really, you know, I describe this as work that's just so close to my heart. And it really is that um, people um, learning to, to open and, and to be touched and to be held and to feel safe and supported, perhaps in ways they've never had the opportunity before, even in their lifetime. So it is actually quite profound and, and inspiring what is made possible by the combination of this type of medication in a safe 
supported psychotherapeutic environment. It's all about the intention with this. I know that people are using um, uh, illicit drugs on the streets, and right now in Canada and in other jurisdictions, um, the, the illegality of these substances gives them uh, quite a stigma. Mm-hmm. Um, however, that is an entirely different context. That is a different, that is a tainted, a uh, often very dangerous form, drug yeah. supply. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we could say, and some people are doing it for fun. I mean, people have various reasons, but or to in escape, this context... to escape, potentially. You know, they want to get away from their pain. Potentially, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons behind why people use anything. I mean, uh, television, Netflix, you name yeah. it. Um, however, in this context, these powerful drugs are being used with a very specific intention and purpose of healing and of helping people heal. And when the, the, the participant and the therapist are united in that intention, it actually has a profound impact on what is possible. So, so this is not something where you would just go out on the street right. and take this drug and, and you're solved. And then go to your, and go to your, yeah, no. go to your therapist and you're solved. No. So, okay, yeah. so what's the process? This is a clinical study, obviously, so very scientific. You have to follow the rules. And I know the, the cannabis industry talks a lot about this. They want to go, they want more clinical studies. So they can prove that cannabis does this or that. For you, you ha- you're in you're in the lane now. You're doing this, but you have two things. You have to find people who are willing to not only take MDMA but also go through therapy. And sometimes those are two things that people are like, I don't want to do those kind of drugs, and I don't want to see a therapist. I mean, how do you even get people to volunteer to be a part of this clinical study? And how long will this study go on? And when will we be able to see more of this uh, in a regular basis? And can is there places in the world you can go do this somewhere else? a lot of questions well, there, sorry. So, yeah, so, so to your first question, uh, we don't anticipate there being any issue with demand uh, in terms of par- people wanting to be research mm-hmm. participants. People are desperate. People's lives are, are decimated by post-traumatic stress disorder. People have tried everything and they're willing, uh, in many cases, to try anything. And um, this research, as I mentioned, has been going on um, now for quite some time uh, with MAPS spearheading all of the phase three studies right now that are really the final stage before drug approval. Mm -hmm. The safety has been shown. The efficacy has been shown. So we don't anticipate um, having a a paucity of of research participants. In fact, we're trying to brace for the demand being more than we can offer. We will have 20 participants coming through the study. It's small in terms of the burden of PTSD in our country. One in 11 people, as I mentioned, experience Mm -hmm. PTSD in their lifetime. But it is something and it's a big step forward in terms of uh, the legitimacy of this treatment improving and showing that in a, uh, in a setting in our clinic where, you know, we've loosened the, criteria, the inclusion criteria a little bit. There's no mandatory overnight stay in our protocol. We're making some adaptions hmm. to, uh, adaptations to make it more of a how this ther- therapy is actually going to roll out in a real world kind of clinical setting. Um, and, and we're going to learn from this and, and really uh, help to uh, prove to regulators that this is absolutely safe. Um, it, it's, in ali- it's in alignment with the efficacy we're seeing. So um, we're not worried about um, getting people to sign up. Okay. It's more and, about and get it, yeah, well, and to get it to that real yeah. world setting. How long do you think? How long do you need to do this? You know, we have we went through the whole yeah. vaccine process, and it took a year. But obviously, that we all know that that was unusual. Usually, we hear stories about five, ten years before something becomes the norm or mm-hmm. able to mm-hmm. the mass public. 
Well, it goes to show what's possible when something mm-hmm. is, is uh, considered a, a priority by a mm-hmm. number of stakeholders, right? So mm-hmm. I'm so happy that there's coverage right now about this because the burden of PTSD in our society and made even worse by the global, 19, uh, mm-hmm. the global uh, COVID-19 yeah. pandemic, it should be on everybody's radar that we need solutions. This is costing so much money, at, not to mention, obviously, the more important factor, people's lives and their happiness and their health. So, um, so I really think... Soon yeah, as possible, I think. You know, we're going to wrap it up. As soon as possible. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and the estimate is about two to three years, really, okay. for full drug approval of, of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. And our research is, is contributing to the safety data. Okay. Health Canada needs to make that decision. You know, the United States will not lift an existing, any existing travel restrictions at this point due to concerns over the highly transmissible COVID-19 Delta variant and the rising numbers of U.S. coronavirus cases. So does that make sense with uh, when Canada set to reopen its borders to fully vaccinate Americans on August 9th? Here's a clip uh, from Jen Psaki from the White House on, on their decision. Given where we are today, and I think you've seen this, and those of you who have asked, we've confirmed this for, with the Delta variant, we will maintain existing travel restrictions at this point for a few reasons. The more transmissible Delta variant is spreading, both here and around the world, Driven by the Delta variant, cases are rising here at home, particularly among those who are unvaccinated and appear likely to continue in the weeks ahead. And here's uh, Justin Trudeau, our prime minister, uh, uh, talking about the health data and why, you know, why we should reopen. It's reopen. The health data is fairly clear uh, that encouraging uh, or allowing for travel of fully vaccinated individuals uh, is uh, low risk. It's not zero risk, but it is low risk. And we are confident that particularly because cases continue uh, to stay low in Canada, uh, that uh, it is the right step to do. But every step of the way, we've proceeded in a gradual, responsible way, and we'll continue to monitor very, very closely. So joining me now is Len Saunders. You've, you've heard him here before. He's a Blaine immigration lawyer. Len, 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 what, what's going on? What, this, this is not surprising. What is, what, what is happening here? Well, I think there's a lot of confusion with the general public because there's literally no cooperation between the Canadian and U.S. governments. And so Clearly. everybody's wondering what's going on, what's going to happen going forward, and you know, when are they finally going to be able to go back and forth over the border freely? Why, uh, why is the Americans being so cruel to us? Why can't, we, why can't they let them come up to visit us and spend their money? Well, it's, it's ridiculous when you can fly to the U.S., yeah with only requiring a negative COVID test, no proof of vaccination. So it's like having the back door of your house wide open, but the front door, the land border, is closed. It's so weird. And it's weird. I think Trudeau has done a good job at coming up with a plan. I was very frustrated sitting here at the border, watching everyone at the park, no cars going back and forth, and it's dragging on. It's nice to see that the Canadian government has started some sort of reopening and a plan, whereas the American government, it's, so, it, they just keep extending this, this travel restriction. And so that's what you're telling your clients, basically, and you're telling us that you, we, we don't know. We do, it could be August, late August, could be September, could be October. Real quick, what, what's the timeline on this? I've given up guessing. So <laughs> okay. when I can go to Mariners baseball games in Seattle yeah. at full capacity and have clients fly in, who knows when that land border is going to open? I feel sorry for so many of my 
neighbors here who have businesses in Blaine. They're dying to have Canadians come south. So it's nice that the Canadian government is allowing Americans. And I've heard of a lot of Americans going up to Whistler. They're now going to go fishing on the West Coast. And they're looking forward to having, you know, plans for, for vacationing at the end of summer. I feel so sorry for all of these Canadians with places like the Roberts and Birch it's Bay that confusing. have been patiently waiting. Yeah. And this, this announcement yesterday from the White House, they don't it want doesn't us. specifically address the, the land border. But you know when they are continuing to restrict flights coming in from China and India and Europe and other countries around the world, there's no way they're going to just reopen that U.S. border. So at this point, right. who knows? Who Maybe knows? Christmas. So our next guest took on a challenge that lasted a year to to eat only what they catch, grow, harvest, and raise. Uh, and that year is almost up, and they join me now. I have Steph Lowy and Chris Hall, uh, Pender Island residents. Hey, guys. How you doing? Thanks for joining me. So what? Why did you do this? Obviously, the pandemic hit, and you said, "You know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna just hunker down and and just grow local." Yeah, I just kind of wanted to make the most of it. I think uh, it's kind of always been something I've wanted to to do a little bit, and uh, the pandemic just put things in in perspective for us even more. I think with grocery stores running out of some items, and and just really made us think about just how reliant we are on you know big corporations and and big agriculture to provide us with our most basic needs and. You know, what, what would happen if we got put in a position where we had to fend for ourselves? How did you prep for this? I mean, you, you tell me your, your environment that you live in and, and how you could make, make it work for you. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're very fortunate to be uh, in Southern Gulf Islands. We have uh, two big factors that help us. One is our, our kind of sub-Mediterranean climate um, that allows us to grow a lot of sort of hardy vegetables through the winter, such mm-hmm. as kale, carrots, and beets, and uh, also have access to the ocean. So that's been a huge part of... Uh, our diet as well, from crab and prawns and fish to foraging for a bunch of different types of seaweeds and harvesting our salt from the ocean. So uh, very fortunate to be what we are and have, have access to those things that have been a huge help. Uh, so this is Chris I'm talking to, I assume. Steph, how, you know, what were your first challenges? Yeah, it's been uh, quite a few challenges right from the get-go. Um, definitely having to uh, kill our own meat for uh, protein and mm-hmm. uh, learning how to garden. I'm not the best <laughs> at green thumb out there, but uh, definitely been a couple of challenges okay, in that hold, perspective. Yeah. Hold on, Steph. You, you, first of all, you're not a good gardener. <laughs> That's a challenge. <laughs> I mean, I would have assumed you guys had green thumbs to get into this. But also, you said you got to go kill, kill, find the animal. Like, what were you eating? What, what protein were you out there killing on Pender Island? And <laughs> do I need to be worried? <laughs> No, don't need to be worried. Okay. Um, we raise uh, meat chickens for protein, so that's kind of uh, one of our one of our. Had you um, had you raised a chicken before and 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 uh, done what was necessary <laughs> to have it on your table? No, never. No, never, wow. never. It, always a big learning experience. Uh, and yeah, Chris has taught me quite a bit along the way, but we've definitely been. Uh, Using Google as a tool <laughs> and some other community members here on Pender have been uh, a great help throughout because right. it's uh, all a learning curve. <laughs> That's true. Chris, so you had dealt with, you know, animals before and the way you needed to do them? Nope, sure hadn't. This wow. is new to both of us. Okay. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that, that's been kind of one of the most eye, eye-opening experiences yep. for us and, and definitely a bit of a, a difficult and emotional thing to mm-hmm to kind of have to, to process your own food and, and do that firsthand. So it's, uh, 
an emotional and eye-opening mm-hmm. experience, but we also feel good knowing that, you know, we've brought them up and gave them a good life and they could free range around our property, didn't grow up in a, a factory and die in a slaughterhouse. So yep. it's, uh, you know, tough for a lot of people to, to comprehend, especially vegetarians and vegans and, and totally get that. But, uh, right, of course, yeah, as, as people that eat meat, we feel, we feel a lot better that we, we do it ourselves. It's tough to find protein in, in, in vegetarian diets, if, especially if you're growing your own, because there's certain, only certain kinds of uh, vegetables that you'd be able to do, I would imagine. Beans, I guess, and some other areas, but it would be tougher to, to, to get away for a year. Did you ever feel tempted to go down and just go purchase, go on a spending spree and say, yeah, forget it. I'm go, let's go to Nanaimo and go on a spending spree or something. I don't know. There's definitely been those uh, temptations for sure. I can't lie about that. Mm-hmm. But uh, we live on a really tiny island where every single person knows our face. So even if we tried, <laughs> I think they would deny us right away. So. <laughs> and, and you're obviously must be working while you're doing this. You're not living for free or do you have jobs that you can do that you gives you the freedom to do this? Yeah, so we, we were both kind of out of work when, when we started during okay. the pandemic, but um, after a few months, we're both back back to work full-time, so it's definitely uh, a lot of long days where we get up early and uh, let the chickens out and feed them and do all our morning chores and then focus on our jobs for the day and finish off our, our kind of homesteading chores in the evening or pull up crab traps and things like that, so it's... Uh, the long day is definitely balancing both. But, right, uh, we're, we're enjoying the lifestyle too. It's, it's less stressful than our. Yeah, our jobs I, I was going to sure. ask that. What, what was one of the big surprises of doing this for a year? You know, what, what was the thing that surprised you most? Um, I'd say for myself, probably just how much I fell in love with this lifestyle mm. and how good I feel about not only like um, physically but emotionally. And um, yeah, it's quite changed the relationship I have with food and uh, where it comes from and. Um, just being a part of the whole process. What about each other? Do you have a better relationship with each other? or do you want, <laughs> Did you want to kill each other once in a while? <laughs> Both. <laughs> okay. Uh, understandable. Yeah. Now what? What happens now? What are you, what, what, are you going to keep this going? Or are you just going to be living off the land for the rest of your lives? Or, or are you going to go to Costco and buy a big flat of cheese or something? Well, I, I think we're definitely going to have a bit of a cheat week coming up okay. here uh, ne- next Monday and indulge in some things. But, okay. Uh, it definitely won't be going back to the way it was. I think we're we're going to continue with with ninety five percent of us. We're we're really loving it. So um, probably start making some allowances for things like coffee and and the odd meal out here or there. But uh, no, we're going to keep uh, getting stuff from the ocean and raising chickens and growing our food for sure. Awesome! Thanks for joining me, you guys. Yeah, really appreciate having us on. And yeah, if people want to find out more. Um, they can check out all of our, our weekly videos and updates and and what we sort of been through on YouTube at Loving Off the Land. L- loving Off the Land. Yeah, loving. L-O-V-I-N, off the land. Off the land. All right. Thanks, Steph. Thanks, Chris. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone. And for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.